Good morning. You can turn over to Matthew chapter 12. We find ourselves there this morning. Matthew chapter 12. We're talking about Jesus, God's chosen servant, who is our example. And we're following up on a message we began last week. And we'll continue through the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Harry Truman was a friendly 85-year-old owner of a rustic Mount St. Helens cabin. And it was on the south shore of Spirit Lake. And the lodge was what he called home. Uh, Him and his 16 cats (laughs) were like family. I would not want to go in that house. I'm allergic to cats, so. He'd spent a, a lifetime on the slopes of Mount St. Helens, and he considered the mountain his friend, and he just loved his lodge, and he lived there with the 16 cats, and he was, that was life to him. And when the volcano awoke early in 1980, Harry and his cats would not leave. I don't know if you remember this story, but it was in the news. As the spring progressed, volcanic activity grew more violent, And finally, the governor of the state of Washington established a restricted entry zone around the mountain and evacuated everybody that was there. Everyone except a few scientists and security personnel. But even then, Harry would not leave. And on Saturday afternoon, May 17, 1980, state officials tried for what turned out to be the last time to get Harry off that mountain. He wouldn't leave. He wouldn't go. Early the next morning on May 18th, Mount St. Helens exploded. And the whole side of the mountain collapsed with a giant avalanche and rock and debris and roared across that lodge that he called home at in excess of 100 miles an hour, obviously obliterating the lodge, Harry, and his 16 cats. Bury them in a depth of 15 meters, they said. They never found them. Never found even a trace of him or his cats. Now, some of us, when we read that, we think, well, how foolish is that? How stupid is that? They come, they tell you to get out. There's, there's danger right around the corner. The evidence was overwhelming. The mountain was going to blow. They evacuated everybody else out. But Mr. Truman refused to leave because he denied the truth that was brought to him. And when he denied that truth that was brought to him in goodwill, he had to pay a heavy price, his own life. Well, what we see here, as we've been going through Matthew's chapter, Matthew chapter 11 and 12, is we see a similar situation with the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Because what we see here really is overwhelming evidence, one established fact after the other that Jesus is who he said he is. He's the Messiah. He's, he's the, the, the chosen one of God. In his authoritative teaching, he did all these miracles. And the religious leaders just remained defiant. They just denied Jesus' identity, who he really was. And theirs even went beyond the case of willful disbelief. They actively, as we're going to find out here, uh, next week, actually, in, in, the, in the coming weeks as we work our way through chapter 12, but they actively uh, opposed him. And then it would ultimately lead to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, this morning, 
we want to make sure that we understand what we're looking at here. This is, this is God the Father looking down and saying, this Jesus Christ is who he said he is. He's the chosen servant that I've chosen for you. And as Ken read this morning out of Isaiah, a portion of our text that we're going to look at this morning is taken actually from that chapter. It probably sounded familiar to you. But this morning we want to look at uh, verses, continue to look at verses 14 to 21. The key passage, remember we zeroed in on verse 18, where it says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, that's out of Isaiah, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. This is the title that God the Father is giving to his son. My servant, I have chosen him, he's my beloved. You can see the intimacy in the relationship. Now, there's many titles given to Jesus Christ throughout Scripture, but this is probably one of the more lovely given to him by the Father. And we see it over and over throughout Isaiah. But we also see, as we've worked our way through Matthew, we see in chapter 11, and even in the the previous chapters here, we begin to see this rejection of who he is. Even though they're given all this evidence, they begin to doubt. That was the first point. And then they begin to criticize. And then they seem what we would call indifferent. And then finally it leads to open rejection. And then eventually blasphemy. And then eventually they're going to ascribe Jesus' works to Satan himself. They're going to look at the miracles that the Son of God does in their presence. And they're going to say, well, we, we know you did the miracle. We can't you know, argue with you that, but we don't believe that you do it by the power of God. We believe that you do it by the power of Satan himself. And he's got to deal with that issue. We're going to look at that in the coming weeks. But all of this opposition is led by the religious leaders of Jesus' day. These aren't atheists. These aren't people who are just openly opposed to God. These are people who believe in God, who want to worship God, who want to to do what God wants them to do. All this. But when they looked at God's word, they said, well, we're going to make up our own rules and our own regulations on top of what God says. And so they had all this legalistic mumbo-jumbo that they put on the backs of the people can't carry a stick on the Sabbath. You can't do this. You can't do that. And you see Jesus openly calling him to the carpet. And so in contrast to the Father's declaration of who the Son is that we see here in chapter 12, we see the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day saying just the opposite, the total opposite. They came to the opposite conclusion. They even, as we looked at last week, decided that they're going to have a council. They wanted to have a council of the religious leaders and figure out how they're going to basically kill Jesus. Not whether they're going to kill him, but how they're going to do it. They were already there. And you notice there, he uses two words here. He uses the word servant. And we talked about this last week, but just to catch up with you, if you weren't here, that word servant is is often translated son as well. So you could actually translate that servant son. And he also calls him my beloved. Agape, which is the truest, richest kind of love. And you see the intimacy of their relationship here. And so we're introduced to the servant son by his father. That's what God is doing here. He, he takes you through this in Matt, Gospel of Matthew. Matthew does, and he says, okay, here's what they're saying about him. And he leads you right up to this point, and then he says, now here's what God the Father says about him. And in spite of what they concluded, God looks down from heaven and he says, you know what? 
I am well pleased with my son. And this is who he is. And we've been looking at different characteristics of Jesus Christ and his servanthood. Characteristics that hopefully we can emulate in our lives. And just real quick review, last week, the first characteristic, in verse 14, we looked at that Jesus Christ was the servant of God, and he was condemned by false servants. And we talked about how they were trying to get this council together, not to figure out whether he was guilty to be killed, but how they were going to actually kill him. They didn't care about his guilt or innocence. And then we also saw that he was conformed to God's plan. And we saw throughout the Gospel of Matthew how there's a constant cycle in the life of Christ. He would go to an area, he would preach, he would teach, he would heal the people, and then there would be a great response, and then there would be opposition, and then he would withdraw and he would leave, and he'd go somewhere else. And he'd go there and he would preach, he would teach, he would heal the people, there would be great response, and then there would be opposition, and then he would withdraw and he would leave. Preaching, healing, healing, response, opposition, withdrawal. It's just a constant cycle in his ministry. He kept withdrawing. He kept moving away from people. And the reason he did that was because he was conformed to God's plan. It wasn't his timeline. It was God's timeline. And sometimes we need to glean from that. Sometimes God wants to do a work in our lives, and we're like, no, I want it done now. And God's saying, no, you don't understand. The work that needs to be done in your life is going to take the next five years. So get used to it, pal. This is where you're at, and this is where you're going to be. And this is what I'm doing in your life. Now just sit back and relax and, and let me do this work. Because if you fight against it, I'm going to do the work anyway. It's just going to be more rough on you. See, he could have acted in any fashion in which he had wanted to act in his own defense, but that wasn't within the plan of God. It wasn't that Jesus was some, you know, lame lame duck savior that didn't have any power. I mean, he had the overwhelming power of God. He was God. And in any moment, he could have just went, boom, crispy critters. All of his opposition was gone. Did you ever wish that on your enemies? Maybe those that oppose you at school or at work or in relationships or whatever. Man, I just wish I could just zap and they're gone. He could have done that, but he didn't do that. Why didn't he do that? It wasn't in the plan of God. See, we said that his revolution must not come by the shedding of Roman blood, but by his own blood. That's what God had planned. His rule must not come from the hands of an angry mob, but on a cruel cross. See, he was totally committed to doing the Father's will. And that's the essence of his servanthood. That's what made him such an incredible servant. That's what makes people such incredible servants is when they're willing to set their agenda aside and say, God, I don't know what you got for me today, but whatever it is, let's do it together. Fill me with your spirit. Help me do it in your power. And whatever may come, hey, it's going to come. Because he was conformed to God's plan. And the third thing we looked at, just way of review also, is that he had a concern for the needy. In verse 15, it says he withdrew from there, and it says the great multitudes, what did they do? They followed him. Why did they follow him? Because he was meeting their needs. And then it says he healed them all. And we talked about how, do you, do you realize that Jesus healed them all? Do you know that Jesus healed unbelievers in his ministry? He healed people that didn't believe he was the Messiah. He healed them all. That's what it says. Why did he do that? I think it's a demonstration that God is reaching out to these lost, poor, needy people. 
He just got done in Matthew 11 when we looked at that and he said, come unto me, all you who what? Who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you for my, and learn from me because I am gentle. I am humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. How could he say that? Because he was looking at the religious leaders and what they were putting on the people. Piles and piles of rules and regulations to the point of exhaustion. And Jesus says, that's not about a relationship with God. See, some people think that the more religious they get, the closer they get to God. I would beg to differ. It's just the opposite. The more religious you get, the further away from God you become. Because God is not about religion. God is about a relationship. And don't think for a second what you do in your life you know, somehow earns you kudos with God. And one day in the end, he's going to look at you and say, oh yeah, come on into heaven because of all that you've done in your life. No, that's not how it works. The Bible is very clear that we're saved not of works, lest any man should boast. We're saved by grace through faith. What is our faith in? It's not in our works. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ understood that. And when he looked at these people, he saw the religious establishment had piled all this stuff on top of them. Some of us have come out of religions like that, where you're given a bunch of rules and regulations and just religious stuff you have to do. And somehow the more stuff you do, you think you're earning credit with God. And the Bible says that God looks at those credits and he says those good works. And he says, you know what? If you're not doing them for the right reason, they're like filthy rags. I'm just going to throw them out. See, he knew the heart of the people that he ministered to. It says that he healed them all because he wanted them to know that that was God's heart. No one was left out. He didn't look out and say, okay, let's see. Oh, you're one of my disciples. Come over. I'll heal you because you follow me. He didn't do that. He healed them all, it says. See, that's why Peter can say... Cast all your care on him because he cares for you. That's why when we share the gospel with somebody who's not a follower of Christ, who's not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, who hasn't yielded their life to him as Lord and Savior, we can tell them God loves you. God cares for you. Because it's not on a basis of what they're doing. That's why when we talk to someone who's in the homosexual lifestyle, we can tell them God loves you. God died on a cross for you. He wants you to repent of your sin and come to Him. We don't have to say, well, you wait, you've got to get cleaned up first. You've got to leave all this stuff first. And then God will love you. That's not the gospel message. The gospel message is that and while we were yet still sinners, do you understand this? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What an amazing truth. We don't have to get cleaned up to take a bath. That would be silly. You don't have to get cleaned up to come to Christ. You have to look at your sin and you have to acknowledge your sin and say, man, I've blown it. And acknowledge it as sin. That's what confession is. It's confessing your sin to God. Saying the same thing about your sin that God says. Not trying to justify it. Not looking at it and saying, well, everybody else is doing it. What's wrong with that? Or anything like that. But just looking at it and honestly and openly saying, you know what? What is in my life is sinful. And it's an offense to God because God is holy. 
And if I want a relationship with him, I need to say the same thing. I need to confess this sin to God and say, God, change me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. God will hear that prayer. And he'll touch your heart and life and he'll change you in a way that you cannot even imagine. See, he's giving them just a taste of what the kingdom's going to be like. He's just giving them a little glimpse. When he healed all those people, he's saying, this is what it's going to be like in my kingdom. There's not going to be any sickness. There's not going to be any sorrow. There's not going to be any crying. There's not going to be any tears or death. That's all going to be eliminated. It's a little taste of what heaven will be like. But Christ truly feels the pain of hurting people. And so he was submissive to God's plan. And at the same time, he was confirmed in his love for the people. He was condemned by the false servants, concerned for the people, conformed to God's plan. And then the last thing we looked at last week was he was commended by the Father. It says in verse 18, Behold, look at what it says, My servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. The Father is pleased with his Son. He is commended of the Father, by the Father. He is pleasing to the Father. He was so well-pleasing that, that, that he, he exalted him. At the end of his work, when he said it is finished, he exalted him to the right hand of the Father, the Bible says. And it was because of his utter submissiveness to the service and plan of God. Well, today is where we pick up in verse 18. He says here at the end of verse 18, I will put my spirit upon him. I will put my spirit upon him. Verse 18. He was commissioned by the Spirit of God himself, is the fifth point in your outline. See, that was a promise of Isaiah 42 that, re- that uh, Ken read this morning. When the Messiah came, the Spirit would be upon him. That's a quotation out of Isaiah. It doesn't quote it exactly, the whole, whole verse. Matthew, kind of under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, picks and chooses what verses he's quoting from Isaiah, but it's from Isaiah. And we knew that happened at a very unique time in his life, at his baptism, because the Spirit of God, it says, descended on him like a dove. That doesn't mean a literal dove came down. It means it was like a dove. But I don't believe that's when the Spirit came upon him. I believe that Jesus Christ was indwelt by the Spirit of God from the time that he was conceived in Mary's womb. It says of John the Baptist in Luke 1 that he was filled with the Spirit from the mother's womb. And when we read that around Christmas time, we said, we scratched our heads theologically and said, how can that be true? I don't know. But that's what the Bible says. So, and John was just a human being. Can you imagine the Son of God who is a human being and he's fully God? Why couldn't that happen with him? He was a God-man. It also says in Matthew 1 that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? He's already God, and the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are already one. What does it mean to have this special putting of the Spirit on him? You can understand it too, one of two ways. First of all, it's the granting of power to his human nature. You have to understand Jesus was God, but he was also human. Fully God, fully human. 
His divine nature didn't need this power, but his human nature did. He was at every point, the Bible says, tempted like we are. He was truly human. The Bible says also that he grew in wisdom and stature. In favor with God and man. That's what the text tells us. He was tempted, he was thirsty, he was hungry, he was tired, he felt pain, he wept. He had emotions. In the garden he even said, Father, if it's possible, this this cup pass from me. But not my will, but yours. See, that was his humanness speaking. He was looking about the, uh, forward to the torturous death that he was about to go through. And he's like, hey, hey, Dad, if there's any other way that we can accomplish this, right now would be the time to tell me. <laughs> but if not, not my will, but yours be done. Because what's coming around the bend on this cross and the mocking and the scourging and everything does not look something that I'm going to enjoy on my human side. His human needed the indwelling power of the Spirit of God in order for it to function in concert with his deity. And so he was granted that. That's why in Acts 10.38, it says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. It was for power to do this unique and marvelous ministry that he had. Well, also, there's a second feature here that's tied with his baptism, and I believe it's a very unique anointing of the Spirit that speaks of his royal service. See, for 30 years, up until that time, he had basically lived in obscurity. For the most part. But when it came time to initiate his ministry, he was giving a very special declaration by the Father. And it was unique because it dealt with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah 61... Verse 1 is really a, a fulfillment of that, which Jesus himself is quoted as being fulfilled by himself when he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach. So there's not only the Spirit of God from the very conception to empower his humanness, but there's also a special anointing of the Spirit of God at his baptism for his service to the Lord. He was granted the Spirit. And he functioned within the Father's plan and by the Spirit's power. See, that's, that's the box that we are to work in as Christians. If you were to say, well, you know, ministry, how, you know, are there any parameters in which we should work as far as ministry goes? Yes, you should do it by the Spirit's power and you should do it by the, the Father's plan. You're safe if you do those two things. The minute you go out there and try to do ministry in the flesh, what happens? You end up failing. You end up dishonoring God somehow. The Bible says whatever we do in the flesh is sin. So if we're out there, we could be working hard for the Lord. But if we're doing it in the flesh, if we're doing it in our own power and not God's power, God's saying, hey, that's not counting for anything. So just stop. Or if we're out there and we come up with some ingenious idea to grow the church and we think, hey, this is cool. And we don't pass it through the Word of God. We don't pass it by the Word of God or the Spirit or anything. We just come up with some crazy plan to get a bunch of people here. It might work. But if it's not within the plan of God, God's not going to look down from heaven and say, wow, now you've got a church of 300 people. Way to go. He's not going to say that. 
He's going to say, what are you doing? I haven't called you to do this. This isn't my plan for you. You have to operate within the plan of God and operate by the power of God. That's what Christ did throughout his whole life. That's the totally opposite of what the religious leaders did in Jesus' day. They They operated in their own fleshly power. See, that's why when they looked at God's word, they looked at God's law, and they said, whoa, it says this. Let's whittle this down a little bit, and we'll make up some rules that are a little easy for us to follow. So here, now, here's the top ten. Okay, do these. <laughs> well, they, they, that wasn't good enough. They had to come up with all these other regulations. So when they fulfilled their own man-made regulations, they could look at everybody else and say, see, we're doing the thing. We're doing what we prescribe, not what God prescribed. That's why Jesus is constantly saying, you've heard it taught, you've heard it taught, you've heard it taught by your religious leaders, but I say to you, forget what they're telling you because it's not right. That's what he's saying. Sometimes we have to stop and compare what we're doing in our actions and our thoughts and everything that we do about ministry with God's word. This should be our book. This should be our standard of living. Someone said, I don't know if it was, uh, I don't know who it was, but the Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. Okay, that's very important to understand. And the more you get to know God through his word, the more you're going to understand his power, the more you're going to uh, understand his plan for your life. And so the Pharisees of Jesus' day were just the opposite. They were false servants. And they did everything in their own power and by their own plan. There's churches around like that today. The sixth thing is he was communicating the message. In verse 18, it says he will show justice or or rightness, you might say, to the heathen. The Hebrew in Isaiah says he will bring out right what is right. He's going to give the right message. I don't know if you've looked around the churches today, but there's a lot of wrong messages out there given to people. There's a lot of messages about self-esteem. There's a lot of messages about how to, you know, have wealth and health and all this stuff. There's a lot of wrong messages when it comes to God's Word. I mean, the, word, the world is full of, of, you might say, you know, bad answers to good questions. People are always trying to come up with this stuff. But it says here that Jehovah, the Messiah, is going to bring a message of rightness. It's going to be the right message. It's going to be the real truth. The good news. The gospel. The Greek literally says the divine decree. He'll bring salvation, the gospel, to the world, to heathen. And this is the way it's been ever since the beginning. See, some people have their their idea of of God's message a little messed up. I mean, he was prophesied to be the Savior of the world, right? Not just the Savior of Israel, the Savior of the world. And so what he did is he went to Israel, his chosen nation, and he said, hey, here's this truth. The Messiah is coming, and you need to take this and share it with the world. And what did they do? They didn't do that. They took the truth, they looked at it and said, nah, this isn't the guy. (laughs) And they rejected it. And so we see throughout the New Testament, what happened was God reached out to the Gentile then. Because, unfortunately, the nation of Israel rejected him. See, they weren't 
meant to be a cultizac. They, they weren't meant to be given God's message and they just sit there and go round and round and round. It, it was meant, they were meant to be a bucket. Here's God's message. Now, go give it to everybody. That's what Israel was supposed to do. But they didn't do that. They weren't obedient. And so now, God basically reached out to the Gentile world and came up with the whole idea of the church. Okay, if you guys aren't going to do it, I gotta, this, is, this is the way it's going to happen. It's going to happen through the church. I mean, think about it. The first person that the Messiah was ever really revealed to was a half-breed, non-Jewish, Samaritan woman who was a harlot. I mean, that should tell you something about who God is going to share his message through. In Mark 3.8, it says that he preached to the Gentiles. When the Jews heard that, they didn't like that. They, they, didn't, they, they, they believed that the Messiah had come for them. And so this guy, Jesus, couldn't be the Messiah because look at who he's reaching out to. There's no way. That was not a happy message for them. I mean, it shows you how much they hated Gentiles. Um, That's why they rejected Christ so openly. It's because he, he came to save the world. Jewish, Gentile, it didn't matter to him. I mean, in Acts chapter 22, just to give you an idea of how much they really hated, how much hatefulness there was between these two folks, Acts chapter 22, verse 21, Paul's giving his testimony here, and basically he's defending himself. There's a mob around him, and he's telling them about himself and what the Lord has done in his life, and it says in Acts 22, Verse 21, Then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to where? To the Gentiles. Now think about it. He's speaking mainly to a Jewish audience here. And he brings up this topic of Gentiles. Just the word, just the word Gentile, just set them off. Look at what it says in the next verse. And they listened to him until this word. (laughs) What word? Gentile. As soon as he brought that up, man, they shut, forget it. They listened to him until this word. And it says, then they raised their voices and they said, away with such a fellow from the earth. (laughs) He's not fit to live. And they cried out and they tore off their clothes and they threw dust in the air, a sign of mourning. It's ridiculous. Why are they so upset? Because he said the word Gentiles. That's why. That's an idea of how they felt. They weren't really thrilled with the idea that he was going to go share the gospel with the Gentiles. His intention from the very beginning was to reach the whole world. So he wanted to communicate the right message. The seventh principle here we see is that he was committed to meekness. He was committed to meekness. It says that he withdrew. He withdrew. And he spent his time in quiet places with quiet people. Why did he do that? If he's trying to get a following, if he's trying to build a church, if he's trying, why would he withdraw 
from all these people that are following him? Well, the answer is found in Isaiah, and it says this, the Messiah will not strive. The Messiah will not strive. That word means to hassle or wrangle, brawl, quarrel. It says he will not cry. That doesn't mean that he won't cry out, because he does that so many times in the New Testament. But that word cry, it's, it's used here of, a, of a, uh, a barking dog. Just a dog, just yep, 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 just barking. I mean, have you ever heard a dog barking and say, oh, isn't that just music to your ears? I think I'm just going to put that on my iPod and go home and listen to it while I'm sleeping, you know? Ruff, 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 ruff. I mean, that would be crazy. What do you get out of it? You wouldn't get anything out of that. Maybe if you're the dog whisperer, whoever that guy is. But, you know, other than that, most of us would say, yeah, the dog barking, big deal. It's useless. It's a nuisance. That's what he's saying here. The Messiah is not going to come across that way. He's not just going to be barking, making no sense. It's also used of a screeching raven. But it's something that's just useless, is the idea. And it's saying that Jesus did not come into the world to hassle, or to fight, or to argue, or to just mess with people's heads. He didn't come in to do that. It says that he had a marvelous, kind of a, a quiet dignity about him. And when he spoke, he spoke with dignity. He spoke with meekness. I mean, what a contrast to the, the, the brawling, hassling Pharisees who constantly stirred up riots. That's all they were good at. Our Lord never engaged in that kind of political, you know, engagement. He never tried to organize a mob to do anything. He never appealed to people on the basis of just wild-haired emotions. Never did that. He was not a, just somebody who just roused up the people. In Ecclesiastes 9.17, it says, Even the words of a man know better than that. It says, Words of the wise spoken quietly should be heard rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. That's in Ecclesiastes 9.17. Words of the wise spoken quietly should be heard rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. Good verse next time you get in an argument with your wife. Remember that, gentlemen. So there was dignity. There was riotous, no riotous screaming or nasty public, you know, mobs getting together. He didn't want to do anything, but he was filled with gentleness, meekness, and lowliness. He never sought to secure a rightful place by political power, although he could have. Can you imagine if Jesus would have said, "Let's take down"? The, he could have taken down the the Romans in a second with the people that were following him. I mean, it was amazing. Then you add his own power on top of that. He could have done it, but he didn't do it because it wasn't part of God's plan. He would not shut down his opposition by just arguing and doing all those things. He was quiet. He was composed. And here the Pharisees are. They're furious. They're just off the hook. Well, verse 20 shows us another characteristic. It says that he was comforting to the weak 
this is kind of interesting to get to this point. It says, a bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. What does that mean? A bruised reed he will not break, smoking flax he will not quench. Back then, reeds were used for a lot of things. And once a reed was, was bruised, it wouldn't stand up straight. It would just fall over. Um, if you've ever had a straw that was made out of paper, like the older straws, you know, after a while, you drink so much fluid through that, what happens to them? They get kind of, you know, and after a while, if, the, if you actually bend that straw over, it won't even stand up straight anymore. It's almost just going to break off. It's a, it's a bruised reed. Well, back then, they would take these reeds out of the swamps, and they, some, sometimes they were pretty good size, and they'd cut them up, and they'd make little, they could make little flutes out of them. They could make straws out of them. They could make a lot of different things. But one thing they would do is they would make little instruments out of them, and they'd be playing these instruments, and after a while, the saliva from their mouth or whatever would get on them, and, and it would get kind of gooey, you know, like a paper straw would if you had it in your mouth constantly. And, and so eventually it would, it would break. It would be bruised, and you couldn't use it anymore. And that's what he's relating to them here. He's saying, you know what? They've, they've played this, this, this reed and, and now it's just, it's, it's not straight anymore. It's, it's, not, it's not really used for anything. Couldn't be played. And they'd just toss it out. They'd crush it and throw it away. And the same illustration he gives here of smoking flax. They use flax to make a wick out of it. And eventually what would happen is it would burn down and, and there would be no flame left because there'd be no, any more flax left to burn. And it would just kind of smolder. It'd just smoke. There's no fire. You couldn't use it for anything. It's just sitting there smoking. And that's the picture here that he's trying to draw for them. Well, why is he trying to draw that picture? It's a picture of hurting people. That's what he's doing. He's talking about the ones that everybody else steps on. He's talking about the ones that everybody else discards. He, everybody else throws away. The bruised reeds that can't be played anymore. The smoking flax that can't be used as a wick anymore. It's just discarded. It's thrown away. He's talking about the weak, the powerless, the helpless the ones who've had their lives destroyed by sin and suffering, the unworthy, the ones without any spiritual resources. See, the whole world is trampled, despised, ignored, suffering, hurting people. And these are the kind of people that human conquerors have no time for because they can't get anything out of them. Pharisees didn't care about the people like that. People that were bruised reeds or smoldering flax, get out of here. Remember, the only time they would ever reach out to those people if they tried to trap Jesus, and then they'd, hey, go grab that guy with the, the bum arm, you know, bring him over here. They didn't care about him other than that. They were trying to trap Jesus, set him up for a healing thing, see if they can get him to heal on the Sabbath. But other than that, they didn't care about people like that. They were only concerned with the rich and the famous, and those who had everything together, because those were the only ones that could... Give something to them. Very selfish people. And what it's saying here is, is really the very opposite of what the Pharisees would do with these things. Because it's saying that he picks up these reeds and somehow he plays a melody through it, even though it's bruised. And he'll fan the flame on that wick, on that flax, until the flame comes back. So it can brighten a room and fill it with light. He picks up the sick. He picks up the tax collectors and the prostitutes. 
and the sorrowful and the fearful and the tearful and the doubters and the hungry and the sinners. Those are the people that our God is interested in reaching out to. That's the kind of Savior He is. He's the total opposite of what the religious leaders were all about. And that's what's indicated here by Isaiah. That he is indeed God with us, Emmanuel. And, and that is because his, his, he has the heart of God. Jesus Christ doesn't want to make your life miserable. That's not what his intention is. He wants to take your miserable life and make something of it. No wonder he's a beloved servant. He was condemned by the false servants. He had a concern for the needy. He was conformed his life to the plan of God. He was commended by the Father. He was commissioned by the Spirit himself. He communicated a right message. He committed, was committed to meekness. He comforted the weak. And I love verse 20 because it just tells us of the victory that he's going to have. It says, and he sends forth justice to what? To victory. All this consummates with victory. In spite of all the persecution, in spite of all the difficulty, in spite of all the rejection, in the end, he's going to be victorious. And sin will be banished forever. Amos said, justice will roll down like waters. And as Isaiah said, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is full of its own water. I mean, that's a great promise. That's what we have to look forward to, beloved. Ultimately, we're going to win with him in victory. I mean, I don't know about you, but that kind of excites me because you look around at this world and you look at all the cruddiness that's going on, all the sin, all the negativity, all the hurt and, and dying people across the globe. I mean, it just breaks your heart when you turn on the news and you look at these folks in Haiti. It breaks your heart when you hear of, of someone who had a, a loved one die and they have no faith at all to rely on. How do they get through that? I mean, I love to come to the point when we realize that, you know what, we're going to be victorious one day. As hard as it is, it may be the most difficult thing you're walking through right now in your own life. I don't know what it is. Could be a marriage, could be a child, it could be finances, it could be relationships, it could be loneliness, it could be desperation, it could be substance abuse. It, I mean, you could go on and on and on and on. But I'm here to tell you if you put your faith in God, if you trust in Christ, you'll be victorious. In the end, you will be victorious. And that's all that really matters. That's all that matters. Everything else can just fall by the wayside. If in the end you end up on the right side of glory and you're with your Savior in heaven, do you think what kind of car you drove is going to be important or what kind of job you had or what kind of wife you had or husband you had or kids or anything? None of that is going to be important at that point in eternity. None of it. And so we have to stop and we have to Remind ourselves that when we live down here on earth, it's God's plan that we live a life that brings him glory day by day by day. 
How do we do that? By doing God's plan through God's power. Don't stray from that. Just be committed to God's plan and ask God for the power to carry out his plan. He'll take care of the rest. Because the minute you wander off that road, you're on your own. You really are. And God's saying, hey, what's you doing over there? I don't know what you're doing over there. You're supposed to be over here. And we need to remind ourselves because the world is so enamored with success. The church of Jesus Christ is so enamored with numbers. With the positive message that brings the positive crowd that just, you know, and everybody just sits around and everybody's just positive. We have to stop and question sometimes our motivation, sometimes how God is leading us, where God is leading us what God wants us to do. But I guarantee you, when you come back to it, if you do the plan of God through the power of God, you cannot fail. You will not fail. You will be successful because you'll be relying on God himself to do his work in and through you. And that's the only way it can be done. Jesus came along and he put a new song he, he fanned a fading flame. He reached out to those who were suffering. The Bible says that Christ came not to call the righteous. That's not the purpose he came. But it says he came to call sinners to repentance. He didn't come to heal those who are well. <laughs> that would be ridiculous. But he came to heal those who are sick and are willing to face their sickness. I mean, how different that was from the picture that was painted in the, in the Gospels of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. He's so different from them, and that's the way it should be. He is the one. He is the chosen servant of God, the beloved. And we would do best to follow his example in our own lives. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, we pray that as we look at Christ, as we look at his example of servanthood to us. Lord, I pray that we would follow that, those characteristics, those principles that we see here. Lord, we ask that you would bring those that would come to you. I pray that you would draw them onto yourself. There's nothing we can do. We can't make a decision for somebody. We can't make a choice. Lord, but you can draw them onto yourself by the power of your spirit. You have the ability to even overwhelm their unbelief, their disbelief, and cause them to repent, to turn to you. To realize that you're not here to cause them more suffering. You're here to take that bruised reed, that smoldering flax, and restore it as you designed it to operate. Father, we pray this morning that you would there's anyone here who has yet to put their faith or trust in you as Lord and Savior, that you would confirm that message to them. That you're a God who saves. That you're a God who's willing to reach out to them and touch their hearts. And for us believers, I pray that as we even pray for those to cry out to you, Lord, I pray that we would never be straying from the plan of God through the power of God. That we would do everything we can 
to fulfill your will in our lives, day by day, moment by moment. And Father, we thank you and we praise you for the example of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.